a very bad choice of appetizer, secret clubs, and even a possible Olympic cheat. Join me for a special Night of the Livy Dead minisode all about werewolves on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, my name's Neil and thanks for joining me for another Night of the Livy Dead episode here on the Ancient History Hound podcast. If you're new to this and find it all a bit confusing, well, for the past five years or so I've recorded a Halloween-themed episode and tagged it or named it as Night of the Livy Dead. It's truly the pun which refuses to die. The overlap between ancient history and Halloween-esque topics isn't as rich as you might think. There are some good stories, one of which I'll be dealing with in this minisode, But generally speaking, the world does get dry, but it hasn't put me off. Over the years, I've covered vampires, human sacrifice, ghosts, demons and exorcism, and included cultures outside of Greece and Rome, such as Carthage, Hittites and Mesopotamia. I should add that the topic of werewolves is one I've already covered. In the first Night of the Living Dead, a two-parter, I covered them with a guest, along with a range of other creatures, and also discussed them in the second Night of the Living Dead. In this minisode, I'll be covering the basics, but also including some information I covered elsewhere, in particular a mountain from my Mountains in Myths episode. Trust me, it all links in. If you want to head over to ancientblogger.com, I'll put up a general post about the werewolves I discuss here, as well as some of the sources. And you can find me on Twitter, at ancientblogger, and the podcast specifically, at houndancient. There's also my Instagram and TikTok, which is both ancient blogger. It's largely ancient history content with the occasional smattering of Bodhi, my rescue dog. So feel free to come and say hi. And just so you know, there will be a full-length Night of the Livy Dead episode for Halloween this year. It's on the Greek underworld and it's going to be a cracker. So get subscribing if you haven't done so already. Right, I'm going to get straight into it and begin with a central character to all of this, a king called Lycaon. Lycaon was linked to Arcadia, a region of the central Peloponnese in Greece. The myth of Lycaon is an early myth of what we designate nowadays as a werewolf myth. Yet, like many myths, this was formed of a patchwork of references and myths which often differed from each other. They also varied in the when as much as the what. For example, the mainstream myth about Lycaon is largely supplied by the Roman poet Ovid in the 1st century AD and the Greek writer Pausanias, who wrote in the 2nd century AD. There are other tidbits about him from writers in the periods in between, a notable instance being Plato, but these are often snapshots or fleeting references. What we have is a large swathe of history, some 700 years or so from the first surviving reference to the more later developed myths. That's a huge amount of time. If we are back in time that many years from today, give or take a few years, we would witness the founding of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, and see the first picture of a cannon in a European text, and also have 20 years or so to wait around before the Black Death hit Europe. Okay, now I'll get to the myth, and I'll begin with a fragment of Hesiod, and I quote, After Zeus had seduced Callisto, her father Lycaon, pretending not to know of the matter, entertained Zeus, as Hesiod says, and set before him on the table the babe which he'd cut up, end quote. Serving Zeus human flesh was certainly a bold move, and one which Lycaon was certainly punished for. In some myths, he was just killed outright, but in Ovid's account, 
he was turned into a wolf. For any Wilwolf fans, you might recognise the name Lycaon. It translates as wolf, or close to it, and this word was found elsewhere. You have Lycurgus, the founder of Sparta, and Autolycus, the grandfather of Odysseus, and of course the modern word lycanthrope, or lycanthropology. The central taboo we meet here is that of cannibalism, but there's also something else going on. For the Greeks, there was a concept of senia, which roughly translates as being a good host and a good guest. And Lycaon, in conducting himself as he had done, broke that convention, and it was a really important value for the ancient Greeks. And there's an irony as well, because Zeus was the patron god, as it were, of Xenia. He was the god associated with this virtue. Lycaon was therefore subverting Xenia with the very god who oversaw it. That takes a lot of guts. Or, alternatively, it's just outright stupid. There was also a variation of this myth which gave a location for the act, and we get this from Pausanias. If you aren't aware, Pausanias was a sort of travel writer. He travelled across Greece and visited a number of places recording myths and stories attached to them. He also gave detailed accounts of what he found and what it looked like. His version of the myth was slightly different, and it involved the altar to Zeus on Mount Lycaon. It was here that the king sacrificed an infant to Zeus, and this caused him to be changed into a wolf. Not only that, it set a precedent. To quote Pausanias, It is said, for instance, that ever since the time of Lycaon, a man has changed into a wolf at the sacrifice to Zeus Lycaos, but that the change is not for life. For if, when he is a wolf, he abstains from human flesh, after nine years he becomes a man again, but if he tastes human flesh, he remains a beast forever. End quote. Pausanias added a somewhat sinister comment later on. He wrote that they still sacrifice to Zeus there in secret, but refuses to say anything further. I find that really quite chilling. The Roman writer Pliny the Elder featured a different account of the goings-on in Arcadia. This was a ritual during which a member of a specific family was selected by lot. He then went to a lake in the region and hung his clothes from a tree. Next, he crossed a nearby lake where he changed into a wolf, for nine years. If he kept away from humans for that time, he could return and transform back. I should note that Pliny immediately discredited this story and suggested that there's little the Greeks won't believe. Perhaps Pliny is being unfair. Pausanias rejected another werewolf story linked to the ritual, namely that a man called Demarcus had competed successfully as a boxer at the Olympic Games and had been through this ritual and changed back into a man prior to his victory. The Greeks weren't buying all of these werewolf stories, it would seem. Pausanias seems to have understood the criticism and rejection of these types of stories, and after recounting his account of the sacrifice at the altar, wrote that many events have been discredited because of the lies built up on a foundation of fact. In short, okay, it might all seem a bit far-fetched now, but there was possibly something true that this was based on. Aside from the whole bad hosting the king of the gods, there are elements of this which have been argued as plausible. Human sacrifice wasn't alien to the Greeks, certainly in their past, and then take a ritual which could be boiled down as a rite of passage for selected families or citizen males which involved temporary exclusion from the town or city. And the Spartans had one such reported ritual in which men did exactly this and were required to survive on their skills away and outside of the city. Alternatively, it could also have been a wolf cult which was left to a select few. What we do have, though, aside from speculation, is a location. Mount Lycaon is formed of two peaks, the modern names being Mount Stephanos and Mount Elias. 
It's the latter, 1,383 metres high, which hosted a sanctuary to Zeus, including that infamous altar. The altar itself is now a collection of stone, some one and a half metres high and several metres in length. This isn't unusual. The mound at the altar to Zeus at Olympia was similarly raised. But what might surprise you is that this sanctuary was no secretive backwater. The sanctuary on the lower slopes boasted baths and even a hippodrome which dates as early as the 4th century BC. Despite the sinister goings-on, the altar has recorded no human finds, just sheep and goat bones, some of which were dated as far back as the 16th century BC. Perhaps the most tentative find was of a teenage boy, and this dated to the 11th century BC, but even then, it wasn't anything that damning or could really support human sacrifice being active at that place. To what extent the wolf cult functioned at Mount Lyacon is debated, particularly given that chilling line by Pausanias, but it was persistent. Plato, in the Republic, referred to the legend of the shrine of Lycaean Zeus and how those who tasted the human entrails mixed with the other victims there was transformed into a wolf. Again, though, the sense fostered is that by the 4th century BC, this was an old legend, a thing which had happened a long time ago. The notion of a wolf cult isn't exactly far-fetched when you consider that cults involving animals were a thing in ancient Greece. Take the example of Artemis at Brauen, a female-only festivals where the bear featured. The young girls participating were even referred to as arctoi, or she-bears. And the idea of human changing shape into an animal was a cultural feature of other civilizations and cultures. In the Mesopotamian poem The Epic of Gilgamesh, which dated to as far back as the early 2nd millennium BC, the goddess Ishtar turned a shepherd into a wolf, who was then killed by his own hounds. It's a story which was possibly one which later shaped into that of Actaeon, a Greek hunter who was changed into a stag by Artemis and also killed by his hounds. Possibly the most famous werewolf story of antiquity comes to us from the Satyricon, a Roman work written by Petronius in the middle of the 1st century AD. In the second Night of the Livy Dead episode, I go into it a bit more in detail, but here's a quick overview. This is a story told by Niceros, a freeman who was once a slave, and one who was eager to visit his love, a widow called Melissa. With his master away on business, he made out to visit her by night, and persuaded a soldier to accompany him for safety. After a couple of miles, the pair rested by the roadside, and Niceros watched as his travelling companion removed his clothes, urinated in a circle around them, and turned into a wolf, who then dashed into the woods. Niceros was terrified and upon inspecting the clothes on the floor found them to be made of stone. After travelling through the night, Niceros completed his journey and arrived at Melissa's estate only to hear that a wolf had been harassing the sheep there. A slave, though, had successfully driven it off and injured it in the neck in the process with a spear. The next day, Niceros made his way back and stopped at the place where his colleague had changed. The clothes had gone, but instead there was a pool of blood and upon arriving back at his master's, he found the soldier being treated by a doctor for a wound to his neck. There are a few similarities to this story and the account which Pliny rubbished, that to change, the would-be werewolf removed their clothes and performed a ritual. What Petronius also gives us is a trope which has been repeated through the ages, something termed the sympathetic wound. It's an injury a werewolf receives, which carries over when they transform back, and is often used as part of a, a narrative with which to identify who the werewolf is. What's missing from the accounts we have are the common associations such as the full moon, silver, and the transformation into half-man, half-wolf. 
The only reference to the full moon we have in Petronius is there as a narrative device, because otherwise there's no way that Nisros could have seen what went on. These features, then, were largely the inventions of 20th century cinema. The full moon creates that tension in the film. It's the ticking clock. Silver was referred to earlier, but certainly became a cornerstone in werewolf myth through the big screen, and made its debut in the 1941 film The Wolfman, where a silver-headed walking stick is used against the beast. As for the half-man, half-human, well, Lassie and Wishbone aside, dogs have limited range, and CGI wasn't an option for films in the early 20th century. There's also the popularity of Jekyll and Hyde, so filmmakers were keen to have their actors portraying monsters rather than, say, dogs. Plus, they can do more, opening doors for a start, and inherently, they're more scary. In fact, a film made in 1913 called The Werewolf, which sadly is now lost, proved this point. Argued as the first werewolf film, the lead role went to a timberwolf, who the audience fell in love with as opposed to being scared by. Well, I'm going to leave it there and hope you've enjoyed this short form episode, or minisode as I keep saying, and I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. I imagine you've got a good few podcasts to get through, and it's great to be amongst them, so thanks again. Any feedback is always welcome, and make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out, because I do have that full-length episode on the Greek underworld, due to be released later this month for Halloween. Until next time, take care, make sure you know who you're taking along with you when you go for a midnight stroll, and keep safe.